0: Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of RealEverything.com. I'm all about loving
1: the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantine of ThePaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health.
0: Welcome back, Whole View listeners. Today, we tackle the topic. That we have per- perhaps gotten the most questions on ever, and mm-hmm. it will be at least a two-parter, perhaps a three, as we dive into vaccines. Now, let me just preface by saying, as I say this word, I like am making hand motions, my eyes are closed, and I'm like, just, just bear with us, okay? We are going to talk about the science behind. The first two COVID-19 vaccines. Um, we had to wait for the publication of the research. And then Sarah has been doing research for, I think, like six weeks now.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the the actual, the FDA um, reports were published in uh, mid to late December. The actual papers were published, I believe, both December 31st. And, um, I mean, this is a topic that I've been following, uh, for a year pretty much. I mean, since, since the novel coronavirus was sequenced, um, but it's, you know, really wanting to make sure that we are laying out all of this science for our listeners in the context of vaccine technology and the history of vaccines and making sure that we answer the uh, frequently asked questions that we address the concerns and that we bust the the myths that are so pervasive right now on the internet regarding these vaccines, but also vaccines in general. And it it just it's you know the reason why this is at least going to be a two part episode and potentially a three part episode is in order to really you know do what we always do with any topic, but with this being a fairly large. Um, topic to, to cover, the the way to do it justice is to take our time and to break it down and to go through. Yes, I, um, Stacey, I know you noticed this before we start recording, but I do have 28 pages of notes to go through.
0: Right. And usually we find that five to seven is a sweet spot for an episode. So we're going yes. to do our best. Um, that said, uh, before we dive in, I, I do just want to say that the word vaccine can be very polarizing. And we are aware of this. There's a reason that Sarah and I have tangentially discussed these. We understand that this is a personal decision for every single person to make, just like every other health and medical decision that you make. We are here to provide the information for you to be an informed consumer. Um, You do with that what you will. We will both talk a little bit about like what our thoughts are as we go forward, but that is never to tell you what to do. And this is also a reminder that we are not medical professionals and that when it comes to medical decisions, like a vaccine, we strongly recommend that you work with a medical professional to discuss your particular health situation and what's best for you. Um, that said, there is a lot of information that is both true and not true floating around on the World Wide Web where anyone can say what they will. Um, and I'm excited to talk about the actual science and break down the reality of these particular vaccines. Um, just a little intro about me. My mother has um, anaphylactic reactions to things that normally someone would not have an anaphylactic reaction to, including gluten. Um, We both have multiple autoimmune disorders. And so one of the questions that I've asked Sarah is both, is this something that you would recommend to someone with a condition like my mom, knowing that Sarah cannot give a medical (laughs) recommendation for my mom. um, But we've had that conversation. And then also for me, having had coronavirus, but not having the antibodies for it. Does that make sense? Right. So this, these are just my personal nuances and questions about the information. And we understand that everyone has their own considerations going into this. So that's why we're going to share science, but you also need to talk to a medical professional in that context.
1: So you mentioned that we have received, um, I I believe the appropriate unit of measurement is a metric ton of questions regarding- That's correct. That is (laughs) the um, accurate unit of measure. I I believe so. So um, uh, if we weigh these questions in metric tons, um, we've got several of them. Um, But I wanted to read a couple of questions that were sort of representative. Um, May wrote, and I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate Um, may intuiting this truth. I am sure you don't want to cover this topic, but you are a source I highly trust, as I am sure a lot of your other followers do. Would you consider doing a show about the COVID vaccines out there? It's so hard to know what to believe these days, not looking to be told what to do, but merely to be presented with the information as you do so well in breaking down the real science that is not filtered through such a biased lens. That, I believe, is the thesis of what we're going to try to do in these episodes is really try to just break down the science um, so that our listeners can be informed. Um, Megan added, can you please do an episode explaining the science behind vaccines and explaining how they really work, including the new COVID ones? You always do an excellent job of explaining things well in a relatively easy to understand way without shortcutting good science. I really appreciate the modifier relatively in that sentence. I think it's doing a lot of work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I want to give both of these ladies gold stars because I feel like they really nailed, the, or maybe, you know, us and our teams for choosing these questions because they really nailed the struggle that we had as we have been talking about how to address this. So please know that we have given much thought and much research to the science that we are going to present. If you have heard other things... um. Whether it be a myth or whether it be something you believe to be a fact, and you have follow up questions, please write them to us via the contact forms on our website um or if you're part of our Patreon fam, you have direct access to talk with us there, and we understand that we will probably have a question follow up to however many episodes this ends up being. Um, but please don't attack social media on like a science fact-based thing that Sarah's about to go into with something that is not grounded with a source. We just want to remind you to refer back to our scientific shows about researching and hypothesis and all of that kind of stuff, because there are things that are valid. Absolutely. We're going to get into all of that, but Mm -hmm. sometimes There's just stuff that people say on the internet that's just not
1: true. Um, And so. Well filtered. Well filtered. Good job. Yes. Okay. Um, And also uh, the show notes will include references to all of the different peer-reviewed scientific papers that present all of this information. So um, if you're looking for more details or if you're looking for the source, all of that is going to be in our show notes. All right. Break it down. Let's go. So let's actually go all the way back to like the history of vaccines. Let's start there because it's actually um, really interesting and you can see some of the um, scientific ethical questions that we still have reflected in like the very early studies. Um, So very, very fascinating stuff. So um, the, the, earliest form of inoculation was called variolation and it was done against smallpox. And actually the practice dates back to the 1600s in China and the Ottoman Empire. Um, It wasn't practiced in um, Britain. And uh, at that point it was colonial Massachusetts. The earliest records of that is 1721. And what variolation did was they took the pus from a smallpox uh, pustule from somebody who was recovering from smallpox. And then they would rub that into um, skin that had been either cut or punctured with a needle into somebody who had never been exposed to smallpox. And um, if you didn't die from that procedure, (laughs) um, you basically were immune against smallpox. And I mean, there were certainly reports of people not surviving, they basically would get exposed to enough live virus that they would get smallpox. But it was actually fairly effective because what is in the uh, smallpox poxes is like it's dead white blood cells and killed virus mostly. So it was a way of basically exposing somebody to killed virus so they could develop an immune response. And then our immune systems have this amazing thing called immunological memory, where when we have fought off a virus or bacteria um, using the adaptive immune system, so that's the part of the immune system that's really specific, we develop memory. And there's actually multiple different ways that we develop memory. So we have different types of memory cells that hang out in our spleen for a very, very long time, waiting for the day when they get to fight the same horrible virus again. And so when we're re-exposed to the same virus or bacteria, we um, we know it. And so we can actually fight it off before it has the chance to basically replicate enough to make us sick. So we will get exposed to the same, say, flu virus again, but the second time we won't actually get sick. Um, and that's because our immune system remembers it and is able to fight it off before it can really like take hold and replicate like crazy inside our bodies. The length of immunological memory, as we've talked about on this show before, varies depending on the virus or the bacteria. So that's why some things you can get more than once. Some things we call the same thing. So we call it the flu every time we get it, but it's actually a different flu. The flu mutates very, very quickly. So every year the flu that's going around is going to be a little bit different than the flu last year. And usually by the time you get five or six years out from the last time you had the flu, your antibodies, your memory cells that remember that flu, the flu has changed enough that um, that basically it looks to your immune system like a new virus. So those memory cells are still hanging around, but they're not really useful anymore because the flu has mutated that much. So this was the earliest form of uh, inoculation. It um, took a a pretty big scientific leap um, when this doctor named Dr. Edward Jenner um, basically is considered the founder of vaccinology in the West. He um, noticed that milkmaids tended to be immune to smallpox, and he realized that they were getting infected with cowpox, which was a fairly minor virus. It's a very, uh, it's like cow version of smallpox. I mean, cows are usually fine with it. They, they recover. Uh, the milkmaids would get a few pox on their hands, they'd recover. But then if smallpox went through the village, the milkmaids had, uh, it seemed to have immunity. So what Dr. Jenner did in 1796 was, here's the ethical, uh, wow, I can't believe you did this. He, um, just took the son of his gardener who was an eight-year-old boy and, uh, inoculated him with cowpox using variolation. And then six weeks later exposed the kid to smallpox and look, he didn't get sick. I mean, that's a lot of confidence right there. And also like not cool, poor eight-year-old boy. Um, but he then repeated this experiment multiple times over the next couple of years in different people. Um, And in 1798, he um, published his methodology and he actually called it vaccination because the cowpox virus was called vaccinia. Um, So it's named after the cowpox virus. And then after this was published as a scientific publication, um, doctors basically started doing this all over the world. Um, And that actually led to the um, understanding that exposing the body to a weakened version of a virus um, could actually stimulate enough of an immune response to cause immunological memory. So that was the the main sort of scientific insight that came out of these ethically dubious experiments. Um, So over the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, there was a huge advances in smallpox vaccination and it led to global eradication in 1979. That's why, um, you know, people my age don't have a pox scar from our smallpox vaccine, but a generation older than us does.
0: That's 200 Uh, years later. Is that what I'm? Yes, just about. Yep. So I just, just jumpstart, just like 20, 40 years <laughs> and we're we're at warp speed. It is incredible to me to think about how technology and modern education has advanced science from this perspective. I actually first learned about this um variolation technique with smallpox by watching the absolutely adult show The Great. <laughs> Have I told you about this show?
1: No, I've seen it. I hey, I, we just haven't we haven't bonded over our mutual adoration of the great. Okay. Uh, what a what a romp! Huzzah! Okay, moving huzzah! on. huzzah! There we go. Um, definitely, definitely, that's uh, a show that I would choose not to watch with my children. Um, so uh, vaccination basically then took it took about like another hundred years for the next big advance in, in vaccination. And that was from Louis Pester's experiments. Um, And he was actually able to develop a live attenuated cholera vaccine, as well as an inactivated anthrax vaccine um, right around the, the turn of the, the 20th century. So 1897 and 1904. And that was the beginning of the development of a whole host of vaccines. I mean, there's just a a ton sort of developed between like the 1920s up to 1950 um, that were using this technology of either live attenuated viruses. So that's a weakened virus. So the virus is not as able to make you sick and to replicate itself as quickly versus an inactivated virus, which may be a dead virus or it's a virus that has somehow had its ability to replicate itself inactivated. And there's even vaccines like the BCG vaccine that was developed in this time that is still in use today. Um, It's quite effective against tuberculosis, um, as well as a bunch of other different viruses. So it's, it's often used in Um, areas of the world where tuberculosis is is still a big problem. Um, The vaccine technology, again, so like in 1923, Alexander Glennie actually was the one who perfected the method to inactivate the tetanus uh, toxin with formaldehyde. And so that was the beginning of uh, a type of um, vaccination that instead of injecting the virus, injects the toxin that the virus makes, um, and it's still able to create uh, an immunological memory against the toxin. Um, And uh, the same method was used to develop the diphtheria vaccine in 1926. Um, Pertussis was developed in in 1948. So a lot of the vaccines that uh, we even still include in childhood vaccination schedules a lot of them were developed, you know, 70 to nearly 100 years ago. They have had um, improvements over that time. So, you know, what's in a vial now is is different than what was in a vial back then. But the technology um, is is pretty much the same. And I think that's one of the things that I really want to emphasize when we go to talk about mRNA vaccine technology. That is really one of the biggest advances in vaccine technology since you know, Jenner's experiments, since Pester's experiments. and um and it's one of the things that I think is actually really exciting as we start talking about about that. But that's sort of a brief history of of modern vaccines. When we look at vaccines today, they all kind of have sort of a the same, basic ingredients. Um so they all work by stimulating an immune response against what's called an antigen. So an antigen is is a bad thing that our um body can make antibodies that will bind to, right? So it's a it's something that our immune system can recognize in a very targeted way. And then that immune response leads to the development of immunological memory so that the next time we get exposed to this bad bad thing, um our body is able to fight it off before we get sick. Um, And so we develop vaccines against things that are really bad. Um, And uh, and that's really important because vaccines are typically a fairly large investment to to develop. Vaccination uh, programs are typically um, very sort of costly programs. Um And so the that type of investment is really only done for diseases that have a really large impact on society.
0: So I think this is one of the things that I have heard so many myths and rumors about. And actually we've talked, now that I think about it, about um, tomato being used as an adjuvant. Mm-hmm. What are some of the adjuvants and how could they or do they um cause the stimulation in a good or a not good way so to speak
1: um so perfect so we have antigen and a virus which is the thing that we want to develop immunological memory to and then we have an adjuvant so basically the reason why we have to add an adjuvant to traditional vaccines is because just adding a little bit of dead virus into our arm muscle is typically not enough for us to develop a robust enough immune response to develop immunological memory. So traditional vaccines add something called an adjuvant, which basically is a thing that ramps up the immune system and gets the immune system basically all hot and bothered so that when it sees that there's this foreign substance in the arm, it goes, ah, attack, and then it basically ensures the development of immunological memory. So, you know, tomato, lectin, um has been studied for use as an adjuvant in vaccines. It's never been used. So we've talked about um, immune stimulating compounds in foods on the show approximately a, it's a, a bajillion times. Um, and so we've talked about compounds that have been explored as adjuvants for vaccines, but generally the most the most common adjuvants are uh, aluminum or aluminum-based molecules. Um, And it turns out that aluminum is very, very good at stimulating the immune system to build up this more robust immunity against the antigen. And actually, this is why it's so common for people to um, feel really terrible after a vaccine. It's, It's not necessarily the antigen that is making you sick. It is just the immune system being so ramped up in general. It's basically creating a lot of systemic inflammation in addition to this targeted um, adaptive immune response against the antigen. So a lot of the side effects um, that you might have if you feel tired or you get a low-grade fever, um, right, you can kind of feel maybe you have some aches and pains. Those are really common side effects um, over you know, 24 hours to maybe up to about three days from a lot of traditional vaccines. That's not actually from the virus um, that's in the vaccine. It's from the adjuvant that's in the vaccine, just ramping up the immune system. And this is why, you know, we have a, a large audience that are people with autoimmune disease. This is the the thing that can, for some people, um, cause typically a uh, temporary and self-limiting flare after vaccination it's it's basically if you've got an immune system that's already attacking yourself and then you throw in some aluminum salts to ramp it up even more um you know there's going to be that period of time when the immune system is on overdrive that there's the potential for additional symptoms um it's important to sort of emphasize that The research shows that vaccines do not cause autoimmune disease, but that people with autoimmune disease can have some increased symptoms. Again, it's transient. It's usually um, only a few days. For some people, it can be a week or two. Um, And this is also, we get back into the cost-benefit analysis aspect because we're only vaccinating against things that have really high morbidity and mortality. Um, In terms of the antigen, there are different... Uh, you know, as we get into mRNA vaccines, which is a really new thing, the traditional vaccines typically are made with inactivated virus, live attenuated virus, inactivated toxins, which we talked about in the context of tetanus, um, or sometimes just parts of a virus. So this can be done as something called split virus, where they basically use a detergent to break up virus molecules, or it can be a subunit or a couple of different subunits. Um, so a, a specific piece of a virus. And there are some COVID-19 vaccines in development that are um, a virus subunits. So they're basically trying to inject like the spike protein of the novel coronavirus as an intact protein. So there are there are some. There are a lot of vaccines in development that are using these more traditional vaccine technologies. Um, you know, as we get into this, uh, you know, almost certainly the next show, if not the show after that, as we really talk specifically about the COVID um, 19 vaccines, um, those are both the the two that are approved right now in America. The uh, Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine are both mRNA vaccines. So that is a whole separate thing. Um, And because they're the first vaccines ever approved that use that technology, they're kind of not covered under this sort of what's in a traditional vaccine piece. Um, But aluminum and, you know, various, right, like aluminum hydroxide and aluminum phosphate, right, molecules that contain aluminum are in the vast, vast, vast majority of vaccines as as the adjuvant. And then vaccines also have preservative stabilizers, um, sometimes residuals from manufacture. That's where there can sometimes be egg protein um, as a residual. So there are certain vaccines that people with egg allergy, they can't have that vaccine because it might have some egg, um, egg proteins left in them. Um, stabilizers tend to be things like sugar or gelatin, um, there's sometimes, um, antibiotic or residual antibiotics added, like neomycin being the most common. Um, and there are still, um, there's still one type of vaccine out there, um, that still uses thimerosal as a preservative. Um, but that has mostly been phased out of vaccines since the 1980s because it contains mercury.
0: So I just want to kind of like peel back this a little bit because it has been, The thing that I have come to understand the more that I have personally researched. So I know that we talked about aluminum. We have also talked about heavy metals not being good for you almost as many times as the other references that we've made here on the show. However, no matter what you're doing in life, eating salt, going about your day, doing whatever you're doing, you're going to be exposed to minor, hopefully low levels of these things that your body is able to process and flush. That's why we have a liver and the whole system that helps us with that, right? Which is why mm-hmm. we talk a lot about supporting your liver and um, you know, eating more organ meats and why I take liver pills every day, because I don't have good liver function, because I have MTHFR, um, just blah, 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 right? So what I want to remind you is you hear the word aluminum in a vaccine and a red flag goes off because you're like, I don't want that. correct the reason that the vaccine is being effective, correct me if i'm wrong sarah, <laughs> is because your body does not want that aluminum and it is agitating your immune system and that is how the vaccine is able to be effective. We we understand and we know that that is not ideal, but it is how the vaccine is working in your body to create um an immune response for the virus itself. Um and one of the things that I would do, for example, if I was going to go take a vaccine, is really prioritize my liver health beforehand. I would do everything that I possibly could for weeks leading up to it to make sure that I was optimizing my body's ability to have a good immune response and to detox and flush that stuff as soon as possible.
1: Well, and I would add, you know, you are you're basically stimulating an immune response to an infectious organism without the infection. And so the other piece of it is all the things that you would normally do for self-care if you were trying to beat off an infection are still going to be helpful in um, developing that immunological response after a vaccination. So, you know, rest, fluids, right? Like all of those things are still really good important practices after a vaccination, but Stacy, you brought up, I think one of the most important points, which is that vaccines are always a cost benefit analysis. And I think, you know, we're at a point now where m- most of us are disconnected from the actual impact of viruses like polio and whooping cough. Um, you know, my, my grandfather survived polio when he was 14 he was in a wheelchair for two years. He, um, then walked with a cane or a walker for the rest of his life and, um, ended up with post-polio syndrome in old age, which, which caused congestive heart failure. And so, you know, for me, I'm like the tail end of, um, the, the, sort of age of people who have a personal connection to these diseases. Um, nowadays, you know, basically like Gen X and younger, generally, um, we don't really understand what the consequences were um, of these viruses. But, you know, just a little over a century ago, the U.S. infant mortality rate was 20% and the childhood mortality rate before age five was an additional 20%. That's what vaccination has been able to do in this country. Um and you know if you think about right you had you only had a 60% chance of making it to your fifth birthday at the sort of turn of the the 20th century that's that's you know we're we're so disconnected from that um we're so disconnected from Um, Not just the mortality, but the morbidity. Um, So, we really, you know, the vaccines that are part of childhood vaccination schedules, or for example, DTAP, which um, adults are supposed to get a booster every 10 years, you know, we're only investing in vaccines that have really high mortality or morbidity rates. And I think it's really helpful to separate out what those two words mean. So, mortality means dying, and a lot of the things that we're vaccinated against have very, very high mortality rates. A morbidity basically means any bad thing that's not death, so that can include severe illness, it can include complications from illness, and it can also include lifelong health problems. So, for example, the morbidity from mumps is basically, or if the the mortality from mumps is basically zero, but uh, morbidity is really, really high. So one in 300 will get encephalitis. That's brain inflammation. One in 10 men with mumps will get orchitis, uh, which is severe inflammation of both testicles, um, which apparently is, uh, incredibly painful and can cause sterility. Um, the measles, um, measles mortality is one in 500. Um, lifelong blindness as a result of measles is about also about one in 500 encephalitis is about one in a thousand and pneumonia requiring medical care is about one in 20. So it's, it's, you know, we're working on preventing, um, infectious disease that has a high chance of killing you if you get it. Um, but it's also looking at lifelong health problems that can result and what the frequency of those are. So, we're at a point now in vaccine development where the safety standards for vaccines, um, is actually way, way higher than any other medication. And that is because we give vaccines to healthy people. So if you think about, um, you know, the safety standards for a, uh, you know, blood pressure medication, right. You're only giving that to people with high blood pressure. Um, Vaccines are a little bit different, right? We're giving them broadly to the population, and uh, the safety standards. You know, we got here in part through making mistakes. So, um, you know, people might be aware that in uh, April of 1955, um, some 200,000 children in uh, the USA received a polio vaccine where um, it was a basically a bad batch, and the a uh, virus wasn't fully inactivated and um it caused paralysis um basically it basically gave these kids polio instead of vaccinating them against polio and it was a huge um it, like it it was it was a huge like okay this is this should never have happened it really changed a lot of things in terms of um you know quality control and quality analysis. Um, really changed a lot of the um, uh, rules around development and it really changed the standards in terms of what was acceptable in terms of adverse reactions to vaccines. Um, so we're at a point now where vaccines are prob- the safest medication, medical intervention, if you think about it in that context. Um, But there is such a thing as vaccine-induced injury. I think what's um,
0: interesting for me, and this also relates to kind of this immune system agitation that I know we're going to kind of talk about, is um, the reality of that injury. And so I think this is where the science and the as neutral of a approach as we can take as humans, like obviously you can't exist without, you know, some of your own bias. But I, I think that it's important to talk about the realities of like, yes, there are people who have a vaccine and then have a negative outcome of some kind. And I think that what I have seen is those cases, the, the one ofs, just like the cases um, in coronavirus where you hear about that one guy who had the thing um, are taken a little bit out of context and been like, this is what's happening. So maybe we can talk about not just what some of those are, but what does the science say about the frequency of those or how we could potentially predict it ourselves or anything like that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this has been extremely well-tracked and well-studied. And in part, it's because of the um, magnification on social media of these sort of very, very rare occurrences, um, making it sound like that they're much more common and eroding public trust in vaccines. Um, So I actually pulled a ton of statistics on adverse, serious adverse reactions. Um, Adverse reaction includes like my arms a little bit sore or I have a bruise. Um, So an adverse reaction to a vaccine is like anything that happens, I get a bit of a headache or I feel really tired the next day. Um, But a serious adverse reaction would be something that requires medical care, is potentially life threatening, or that potentially could result in death. And so I think it's really important to be upfront with the fact that there is, um, like anything, right, like there's a chance of having, um, you know, I had a a life-threatening allergic reaction the first time I was prescribed a a sulfa-based antibiotic. Um, That sucked. (laughs) It was awful. It was... The, like the it was the one of the worst things that has ever happened to me, um, and so you know there are there are adverse reactions to medications is something that happens. Um, but let's go through the stats on vaccines so that we can just sort of emphasize what the data actually shows in terms of vaccine induced injury. So the one that gets a lot of attention is serious allergic reactions. These are typically to either latex, which can come from the type of syringe that's used, um, residual egg proteins, as we mentioned. Um, Sometimes there's gelatin proteins. And neomycin is an antibiotic that actually has a higher allergy rate than some other antibiotics. So it's one that can also, if it's in the vaccine, it's not in all of them, can cause a serious allergic reaction. Um, these tend to be on the order of about one per one million um, people. Um, in fact, it may even be less. So, DTAP is about one in a million, MMR is less than one in a million, meningococcal vaccine, it's so rare, it's hard to actually put a number to. Um, febrile seizure is a seizure caused by high fever. This is only seen um, in the MMRV vaccine, which is very um, unusually used. So it's it's really because of this febrile seizure issue, it's a vaccine that's sort of fallen out of use. But that is MMR plus chickenpox in one vaccination. Um, Febrile seizure rate is about 8.5 per 10,000. And it's also why if you were to ever get that particular cocktail, Um, you would be given instructions for fever control to to go along with it to prevent febrile seizures. Um, Encephalitis, brain inflammation, from the MMR vaccine is about one in three million. Um, And this is also where, you know, I think it's important to sort of um, compare the risk of encephalitis from measles is one in a thousand. From mumps, it's one in 300. And from rubella, it's one in 6,000. So, again, we're sort of getting into that cost-benefit analysis. Some of these um, serious adverse reactions seem to be more linked to the antigen than the adjuvant because we see the same risk in natural infection. Um, And in this case, right, the risk from vaccination is Uh, many, many, many orders of magnitude lower than natural infection, but it is still a risk, about 1 in 3 million. Uh, Dawson disease, or uh, it's also called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, Um, the risk from MMR is about 1 in 1.43 million. Um, The risk from measles is about 8.5 per million. So um, it's about one-tenth the risk uh, from vaccination compared to, to measles. Immune thrombocytopenic purpura uh, is a condition where basically you can't, your blood can't clot, um, and it can be anywhere from very, very bad bruising to something that's life-threatening. Um, The risk from MMR is about 1 in 40,000. So remember, this can be considered a fairly minor reaction where it's just bruising, um, and it can be something all the way to quite severe. The risk is in that first sort of six weeks following vaccination, and it's probably linked to rubella. So the the rate of immune thrombocytopenic purpura from rubella natural infection is about 1 in 3,000. Um, intussusception is a folding of the intestines, sort of like a, like part of the intestine will slip inside itself.
0: You should have just seen my face when you said that. <laughs>
1: um, I'm going to pass. Oh, if, it's going to be I a hard pass I mean, for me. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so this is interestingly seen only with the rotavirus, um, uh, uh, uh vaccination and it's estimated to be somewhere between one and twenty thousand to one and a hundred thousand but it's something that actually just happens to some babies around that age so it's not it's an interesting you know it's being tracked very very carefully um, it's still not conclusively linked to, to the vaccine so that's a sort of an interesting one pneumonia um, from MMR is about one in five hundred thousand, um, and as we already covered, the pneumonia risk for measles is about one in twenty. Um, and then the last one is Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease that, um, for most people, uh, it's quite painful. Um, but it it for most people it lasts about up to about six months. So it's it's a infection and or vaccine induced autoimmune disease that does tend to resolve. So, you know, our autoimmune listeners, um, you know, are not generally familiar (laughs) with transient autoimmune disease, right? Most of us are like, oh, once you've got it, you've got it. Um, from the influenza vaccine, it's about one in 1.25 million. There was, um, like one, like the, the 1976 swine influenza vaccine, um, had, Something like four to eight times higher than that. The risk was about one per hundred thousand, um, and so that is something that is now included in um, all of the the safety uh, trials for for influenza vaccines. Um, and there are, you know, it's there are studies basically showing that the risk of Guillain Barré is actually higher with natural influenza infection, um, and so they're saying that because of that, you know. This could the influenza vaccine could actually be reducing the overall incidence of of um, Guillain Barré, but um, that's one of those things where it's rare enough that you need to collect data over years and years and years to actually be able to have enough statistical power to make really strong statements with with in terms of you know what the risk is relative to natural infection. So
0: I didn't hear you say, um, and I'm going to just put it out there because if we don't, then I don't, I don't feel like we're addressing the elephant in the room, which is that there is not a link between the vaccines, any of them that you just mentioned, and autism.
1: Yeah, it um, has, there's been some incredibly well done, extremely large studies um, published over the last 10 years that have really conclusively proven that there is not a link between vaccines and autism spectrum disorder, um, and I—that's I, probably one of the biggest myths about vaccine safety—is um, you know related to autism. And you know this, the the studies that have been done have corrected for every possible factor. Um, they've been really impressive. And so, um, and so I, you know, it, that's, that's what the science shows. Um, there are serious adverse reactions that can occur as a result of vaccination, but the, um, huge amount of scientific evidence, like really conclusively have shown that autism is not one of them.
0: I want to just kind of like point back to something that you said, which was helpful and cathartic for me, which is that it is agitating the immune response. So while we do have um, whether it's your your personal experience or someone, you know, or, you know, whatever, not listed in these vaccine injuries that you talked about is the potential activation for autoimmune from activating the immune system. But that's not to say that it wouldn't have been activated in a stressful time in your life or some other time when your immune system gets ramped up. So for example, we often see autoimmune from pregnancy or from nursing because your immune system changes. That's not to say that the pregnancy caused the immune system or caused the autoimmune disease. It's that it activated the immune system that way. Is that a fair assessment, Sarah, before we kind of move from this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to to state that autoimmune disease is something that is tracked. That's where the Guillain-Barre syndrome data comes from. Um, but what is known is that um, what vaccines can do is cause a transient increase in symptoms um, within the days up to you know, a couple of weeks after vaccination. Um, and that is attributed to the adjuvant in vaccine. That is, again, there's, there's no evidence that a vaccine can cause an autoimmune disease with the exception of Guillain-Barre in one and one and a quarter million people. Um, and so, um, there, and there's no evidence that people with autoimmune disease should avoid vaccines. Um, if anything, um, people with, uh, immune systems that get up to shenanigans, uh, like people with autoimmune disease, um, we may need more boosters than normal in order to actually develop the same amount of immunity. So, um, if anything, you know, there's, there's good science to point to people with autoimmune disease, potentially benefiting from doing, um, uh, antibody tighter measurements. So basically like taking taking a blood sample and seeing like how well does our did our immune system um develop immunity against this thing that i just got vaccinated at and then using that data to determine whether or not we would get an extra booster over whatever it is but this is where it's really important also to sort of emphasize that vaccines are not about individual protection and this is something that we'll talk about again when we talk about the covid-19 vaccines Indi- they do protect you individually, but what vaccines really do—what's so amazing about them—the reason why smallpox could be eradicated, and the reason the reason why you know polio and measles could be eradicated within the next ten years—the reasons why they work is because of a thing called herd immunity. So what it does is it basically um, makes it so that enough of the population is immune and cannot get it and cannot pass it on, that when there is an individual infection, that virus has nowhere to go um, compared to if nobody had immunity. I mean, we're living through a, a global pandemic right now, so it's really easy to see how quickly things can spiral out of control when nobody has immunity to a virus. And for example, like measles, we've talked about the the r not number um, of the novel coronavirus, right? The average number of infections that can arise from one infection. The R naught of the novel coronavirus is something like two. The R naught of measles is like 18. It is so incredibly, it's airborne, it's incredibly infectious. Um, there's basically a 90% rate of everyone in a household getting infected if one person in the house has it in a household where nobody's immune. And so um and so what herd immunity does and the reason why we have vaccination programs is that it basically it limits the paths for a virus to continue to spread. Um, and then we've got, you know, uh, when, when we have an original, you know, a one case here or another case there, we can do things like contact tracing because it's the odd case. We can figure out where it came from. But the other main thing is it protects the people in our community who maybe have um, some kind of immune deficiency and can't get vaccinated um right it protects children who have cancer and can't get vaccinated but have a high susceptibility to infection um it protects the people in our community who otherwise would have a higher likelihood through risk factors of dying from that infection or having severe morbidity from that infection because the infection can't reach them because of all of you know the chain of infection is broken at every single step along the way. Um, and so, and that's why we can do things like eradicate smallpox. Smallpox does not exist in the world because of vaccinations, which is amazing, right? Smallpox um, had an incredibly high mortality rate, um, not to mention, right, the scarring that would um, live with people for their entire lives. Um, and so, you know. The vaccination is, you know, as we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine, you know, I know that selfishly I want it for personal protection, but um, vaccines are not, that's not their primary goal. Their primary goal is community protection. I love this idea of
0: thinking of others, because that's what we've been talking about with this virus for so long, right? Like social distancing and wearing masks and all that stuff is, it's not just about you, but it's also about those who you're around and bringing vaccination as another way to think of helping those vulnerable populations is something that strikes a chord with me. So I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Okay, I think
0: we're ready for a little more science.
1: So let's talk about mRNA vaccines because I, as I already mentioned, this is like the biggest advance in vaccine, vaccine technology since Pasteur and Jenner. And it um, has the capacity, not just to revolutionize immunizations, but also like cancer therapy and other drug development. Um, it could potentially provide a cure for things like cystic fibrosis. Like it's it's really amazing technology. So it helps take a step back and sort of talk about what mRNA is. Um, mRNA stands for messenger ribonucleic acid, and it is something that our cells make as an intermediary between the DNA and our cell nucleus and a protein. So a protein is a thing that has a function <laughs> in our body, right? So enzymes are proteins, right? Lots of cellular structures are proteins, lots of non-cellular structures are proteins, right? Like our Bone is all minerals that are laid along these long strands of collagen proteins. Um, So protein is like the, the basis of life. And the instructions for making protein in our cells is housed in DNA. And the way that our cells make protein is DNA is first but it's called transcribed into messenger RNA and then the messenger RNA is then what's called translated into protein. So this is basically cellular machinery that makes RNA from DNA and then uses that RNA to make protein. And so that where that, those steps happen, the DNA to mRNA transcription happens inside the nucleus. Then mRNA is translated into what's called the cytoplasm of the cell, which is basically like all of the space in between organelles. If you remember your uh, middle school biology, I know that my daughter was studying this actually earlier this year. And then uh, the translation of RNA into protein um, happens by the at the endoplasmic reticulum um, or by ribosomes that are hanging out in the in the cytoplasm. MRNA was only discovered in 1961, and it was sort of simultaneously discovered by Dr. Sidney Brenner at Cambridge University and James Watson at Harvard. And the, that just really, like, opened up this whole field of biology. But the concept of MRNA as a drug was actually only conceived in 1989, when Professor Malone actually demonstrated that if you wrapped MRNA in A what's called a cationic lipid envelope. So this is a positively charged lipid envelope that you could successfully transfer that mRNA into cells. It's called transfection because it's not an infection; you're transferring it. But see how the words are kind of similar. Um, And that you could you could basically put this mRNA into cells, and then the cells would use that mRNA to make protein. It was. And crazy important discovery in medicine. Um, This has been then built on. So in 1990 was the first time this was actually done. In it was actually done in uh, mouse skeletal muscle cells. Um, It was the first time um, the feasibility of mRNA vaccines was sort of proven to like this is this is a thing that we could do. Um, The first drug company that Focus on MRNA va- um, based drugs was only founded in 1997. I know for me, that feels like not very long ago. Um, maybe for others, it feels like a really, really long time ago, but for me, I'm like 1997, such a great year. Love to
0: 1997.
1: What the 1900s. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe if you say it that way, it sounds like a really long oh,
0: time. Wesley does such a good job of making me feel old. <laughs>
1: um, and so, um, you know, this, this idea of using mRNA to um, deliver the instructions to make a protein to the cells in humans, um, you know, that, that idea is just over like 30 years old. Um, But actually it really, um, it really didn't actually become like a technology that had super potential until 2005. There was a really big advance in mRNA-based drug technology, um, where professors Carillo and Weisman at the University of Pennsylvania basically showed how to modify mRNA so that em- the mRNA would be seen as basically a, a what's called native mRNA. So um, when you put something foreign into a cell, the <laughs> cell goes, yo, what's up? You're not supposed to be here. Um, And so what they were able to do is basically modify the instructions at the beginning and the end of the mRNA so that the cell would go, oh, you're supposed to be here. I'll make, I'll make, I'll turn you into protein, right? Like I'll make my protein out of your instructions. And up until that point, mRNA would have a very, very short half-life in a cell because the cell would attack it basically. So the cell would be like, yo, you're not cool. I'm going to, I'm going to attack you. So that was one major advance in mRNA-based drug um, technology. The other major advances actually have only happened in the last like four to five years. And um, this includes a whole pile of different advances. One is in that cationic lipid envelope. So what's used now is called lipid nanoparticles. So these are really, really tiny, small fat molecules that self assemble into a little envelope around a single mRNA strand and the advances in this technology over the last 4 to 5 years is one of the reasons why these covid mRNA vaccines were able to be developed so quickly <laughs> we're basically like the technology has just was just perfected in the last few years and was like ready for application the other thing that has happened is uh you know tweaking of various parts of this, um, modifying the, um, beginning and ending of this mRNA to get the cell to, to turn it into protein. Um, there's been some, basically some improvements to basically help modulate the immune reaction. Um, and that is something that we're going to talk about really specifically when we go to talk about the COVID-19 vaccines is one really cool little tiny change that they made to the spike protein to make sure that our immune systems would develop, uh, well, would be, we would develop immunological memory, but just make sure that our immune systems would even see the protein in the first place. So what's super, super cool, are you ready for this? mRNA vaccines don't need adjuvants. How does that work? So it turns out out that uh, getting your cells to make a foreign protein, um, your cells will basically think that they're infected and they will they will do what they would normally do if they were infected, which is to take some of the foreign protein and uh, present it to the immune system. It's basically like I always liken this to um, raising a flag up a flagpole. The flagpole is called the major histocompatibility complex, and it is a membrane-based molecule that's only job is to show immune system molecules that are hanging about what it found. Um, and so there's there's two different versions of the major histocompatibility complex, right? There's class one and class two. Class two is what ear cells in the immune system use Class one is what regular old cells will do. To like, it's basically like waving a hand. Hey, yo, uh, I'm infected, and here's this thing. So um, it turns out that getting our cells to make foreign viral proteins is enough of an immune stimulant. Um, There's been a bunch of studies where they've, you know, added different adjuvants to the lipid envelope to try to stimulate the immune system, and they've basically shown that they're completely not required. Um, and so the, the, the lipid envelope serves this awesome function of like getting the mRNA into cells, um, and then releasing the mRNA once it's inside the cell. So it, it, um, just, just based on its structure, stimulates something called endocytosis. So basically, um, the cell kind of wraps its membrane around it and internalizes it into something called an endosome. And then because of its structure, it does this amazing thing where it forces this endosome to open up and release the mRNA inside the cell. The cell takes that mRNA, turns it into protein, it shows the protein to the immune system, and it actually can we can make a lot more antigen this way um, than you can if you were to just like in traditional vaccines, where you just inject de- inject the antigen, so it doesn't need an adjuvant because like there's just there's enough viral protein around that the immune system goes, yo, you're not supposed to be here. And there's really cool ways. So like the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines have done something really really cool with the coronavirus spike protein. Is they have um, added a little piece of mRNA so that when the cell makes the spike protein, it lo- it turns it into a membrane bound protein so that protein gets shuttled to the cell membrane and then it basically sticks the spike out so it has two different ways of showing it to the immune system one is sort of directly um where the cell like that's what it knows what to do with this protein because of this protein structure it knows go send this protein to the cell membrane the protein then embeds in the cell membrane and shows the spike outside of the cell to the immune system but then also There's this whole other major histocompatibility complex, one um, part where it's still also showing protein that way to the immune system. So the immune system's like, look at all this bad protein that's not supposed to be here. I'm going to get all upset and then form this really awesome adaptive immune response with strong immunological memory against you, bad protein, that was put into the cells from mRNA that was encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle envelope with no adjuvant. It's almost
0: embarrassing how excited you are about this.
1: <laughs> I, <laughs> I I just, I think, I think it is so, 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 so cool. So I, um,
0: I just want to point out something that I have heard many, many, many times, which is that this technology is new and it's never been used before. And that's why it's high risk. But what I'm hearing from you is that this was actually discovered and we started working on this technology 30 years ago and really the development the base of the current vaccines started about four to five years ago we just now get to put this different mRNA into it and in in the future hopefully we don't have more global pandemics but in the future we we could still theoretically do the same thing we have the base already and we can just download upload.
1: (laughs) Yes. 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 So, you know, and I, I think, um, I think there's a couple more things to cover before we really get into, you know, this, this myth of this being a unproven technology, but, um, right, right. Here's a good point to insert, you know, mRNA vaccines were actually being predominantly developed as a cancer therapy, um, where you could figure out, a protein that was uh, unique to somebody's cancer cells, and then customize an mRNA vaccine for that person's tumor to train their immune system to attack the tumor cells. And those types of studies were were you know were being done as phase one clinical trials. So there were some human studies using mRNA vaccines already, but also you know that's not the only. Um, you know, scientific um, exploration that this technology was based on. So there's also all of the vaccine work that was done around the SARS pandemic in 2002, 2003, around MERS in 2009. So everything that we had learned about coronaviruses on these other pandemics were just based on the Virology of those those coronaviruses—they um, turned out to be really easy to do contact tracing and isolation because people weren't contagious until after they developed symptoms. Really, really big difference compared to the novel coronavirus. So, um, so those you know turned out to not be the huge global pandemics that we're dealing with now. Um, but all of the science that happened around the coronavirus in those situations also really, you know, created a solid scientific foundation for the development of these vaccines. So um so it's it's very, very cool that um that the ingredients list can be so short in these vaccines. Um, you know they basically can contain the mRNA. Um it's typically a mix of four different lipid molecules. Um, and then there's some pH buffering agents um, and a cryostabilizer cryostabilizer to make sure that everything says stable under um freezing. The cryostabilizer, by the way, is sucrose. Um, all of the buffering agents are well established drugs for metabolic acidosis and naturally found short chain fatty acids in our blood. So like also all of the other ingredients in these vaccines are really safe, very, very well understood molecules. so it's it's really um, I, I mean, I think what's so exciting to me about mRNA vaccine technology is that now that we have this, a super, super fast, all you need is the sequence, the the you know, of the um, virus, and then you can go. Aha! Uh-huh, what's the what's the piece that is um, allowing that that virus to enter our cells? Right. In the case of the novel coronavirus, it's the spike protein. That's why both of these vaccines um, take just the mRNA, not of the whole virus, but just of the spike protein, with as little bit added to to make it anchor to the cell membrane. And then um, and then uh, we can we can get the immune system to learn, okay, here's here's the spike protein. The antibodies that are made then bind with the spike protein so that it can't bind with the ACE2 receptor in our cells. So it can't even get into our cells in the first place. And it also activates all the other cellular processes that would help to eradicate uh, an infection when you have immunological memory. But it's it's so... It's so cool. It's I, yeah. I'm nerding out a lot.
0: I just wanted to let you sit with that for a minute. <laughs> like, yes. I'm nerding out a lot. That's okay. <laughs> um, this, this is kind of your bag, baby. We get it. So um, I don't know. We are, we're at over an hour. Do we have anything else we want to wrap up before we maybe tell everybody we warned you there would be a part 2.
1: <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about the the myths around mRNA vaccines. Um and so it helps to sort of understand you know the the advantages that mRNA vaccines have over traditional vaccines. Because all you need is the the gene sequence um of the the pathogen. Um these can be developed incredibly incredibly quickly. So for example, The um, Moderna vaccine, once they decided that this was, they were going to sort of switch gears and from what they were already working on, and this is what they're going to do, it took them two days to create the RNA sequence um, for this spike protein with the extra little bit to anchor it to the cell membrane. Um, And then they were able to ship their first vial of vaccine to NIH for trials 41 days after that. Um, And that's because uh, this is an inherent advantage of this technology, and it builds on You know, it builds on a few hundred years of vaccine um, technology and understanding of the immune system, as well as uh, 40, 30 years of of, uh, understanding mRNA-based drugs and, and what their potential is. One of the other advantages is safety. So mRNA is not infectious. It doesn't integrate into our cells, right? So it's not like it doesn't become dna and then get passed down, right? It just it hangs out, and it actually, nor it degrades under normal cellular processes. And so, its half life, um, and there've been advances to extend the half life, but the half life in the cell is anywhere between three to four hours, up to about thirty hours. So, by four days after you've been vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine, your your cells that mRNA is gone; it's been degraded. Your cells aren't making any more of that. Um, foreign protein anymore. Your immune system has discovered it, started ramping up, it's learned it, it's developing immunological memory, and then everything can return back to normal. And there's no adjuvant to keep the immune system activated for longer than that. So all of that basically um, relates to a really high safety profile. Um, so that that is really helpful. It's also um, very efficient. So you know, you can get compared to a lot of the challenges with like the, um, uh, subunit-based vaccines where you're just putting in the intact spike protein, you know, proteins tend not to maintain their structures if the pH changes or the local environment changes, right? That the stability of those types of vaccines is really, really challenging. Um, so this is a really, simple way of, um, basically teaching the immune system that something is bad. Um, and it's, and it's highly efficient, um, and it has really, really high efficacy. And then it's also, you know, relatively inexpensive to make, um, it's highly scalable manufacturing. And so it's also why, right. It's why the COVID mRNA vaccines were first and it's why, you know, manufacturing is being ramped up. I saw a news story yesterday about one, I can't remember which one of the companies, but one of the companies was getting their machinery upgraded so they could scale up production because of, you know, the, the need for these vaccines right now. So those are all advantages. So the, the, I think the biggest myth is that they're not, you know, we don't, it was rushed and we don't know if they were safe. Um, it's, It's this technology, the reason why this was possible was in part because of the timing, um, because of scientists who've been working on this for the last 30 years, but especially the last four to five years worth of advances in this technology. This is why basic science funding is so, so important. Um, And I, I know our listeners have heard me talk about the need for more funding for basic science a bajillion times. Um, but there's so much important science out there. And the, the government grants, um, there's so much less funding for them than there was 20 years ago. And what's happening is the science that's getting funded is the science that you you can say, oh, and this is going to like, this is going to cure this disease, or this is going to directly lead to this new cell phone technology or whatever it is, right? It always has to have, um, direct human relevance, but the science that this vaccine is based on is basic science. Basic science is just for expansion of human knowledge. Um, when mRNA was discovered, no one had any idea that it was something that could be, um, could be created (laughs) and put into cells in order to manipulate the proteins that that cell is making in order to treat disease or prevent infection. Like that was not a thing that anyone understood, but the funding for basic science was really really high in the 60s through the 80s. And so scientists just, you know, they they were paid and their they had, you know, the costs of their their research paid through grant funds to just look at this stuff because it was really interesting and it was expanding human knowledge. And now we're seeing the tremendous relevance to our existence. And so just because we can't always see exactly how basic science is going to translate to improving human life, um, doesn't mean that that science is any less deserving of funding than drug development or, Uh, technology development, right? And, and with government grants, right? NIH, uh, NSF, and this is true, you know, in other countries as well, not having the budgets that they really need to fund all of the good science that's being done. What that means is there are people who are leaving scientific research and taking jobs, doing other things, because, There's just there's not enough money to support what could have been an amazing discovery that was relevant to us. Yeah, sure. Maybe it's only 50 years away, but like we don't know unless we do that science and rant.
0: I feel like that needs to be a mic drop, but I also just want to kind of like double mic drop that it also has the ability to cure cancer. Mm -hmm. Mind blowing, incredible. Like Yes, we're all enduring a global pandemic and there have been countless cases we don't even know because people like us couldn't take a test and how many countless lives have been lost and and all of that. But then I think about that in terms of how many of us know someone who has been touched by cancer and how incredible a uh, potential cure, I don't know if I can even call it a cure, but a treatment that would be less invasive than radiation and chemotherapy. And um, I mean, that's just like blowing my mind to think that this is the same technology that could do that. And honestly, even knowing what I know and having the conversations with you that I've had, it also makes it a lot less scary to hear there's, there's less risk involved than I perceived. Let me put it that way. All right. That said, there's obviously a lot to learn, that we have learned, (laughs) that we will know um, in our next show specific to the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. There are two, as Sarah mentioned, that are approved and um, being distributed throughout the United States. So we will learn the difference between them and more about them specifically, including your myths and your questions and all of that stuff, my questions, as I have already submitted to Sarah (laughs) long ago. Um, But we thank you for your patience and your uh, value of science in listening to this show. We hope that you hear from both of us how we appreciate your thoughtfulness and your approach to this topic as well. I know it can be very divisive. And it is always our goal to give you information with which you can make your own decisions going forward. So thank you so much for being here. We will, of course, be back again next week. And if you want more on this topic, we will be popping over to Patreon to talk about what we really feel about this show. um, And it might be time for you to Join the team over there if you haven't yet started, um, if you are very interested in this topic and want to hear more. Uh, We know that we will be back again with at least part two. And then I think we'll probably, as I mentioned, do an FAQ as well. So if you have questions that you wish we would have answered, you can submit them, like I said, through Patreon or the contact forms on our websites. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.
1: you love the whole view podcast we'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family
0: and did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month your patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode
1: but not for kids ears because our bonus content is explicit You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. (sighs) Huzzah! (laughs) Seeking the truth never gets old.